Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Jeremiah, the 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. And for the morning text, I have chosen Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 41. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 41. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And they shall be my people... And I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them and I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. And I will rejoice over them to do them good, and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. Some things are better described than defined. And I would say the concept of the fear of the Lord is one such thing. There are over 150 references in your Bible having to do with the fear of the Lord. Many people think think that this is simply an Old Testament notion. Certainly the Old Testament is replete with references to the fear of the Lord. But the New Testament has its share as well. This is not simply an Old Covenant idea. It's a biblical idea that transcends covenants and history. So I'm going to make an effort at describing what the fear of the Lord is from an episode in my own life. Actually, it's a two-part description. The first occurred when I was six years old, and my mother had become concerned about the condition of my teeth. She arranged for an appointment with a doctor whom she had been told was good with children. Well, that was not good information. The doctor's name, Dr. Solomon. His name would have been better rendered Dr. Solomon. Because when I walked into his office, I still have a mental picture, even as a six-year-old, of how dark that office was. And that may have been suggestive more than actual, but it became even darker once I took my seat in his dental chair. He came with me with a hypodermic needle, and immediately I began to, not whimper, I began to scream and squirm. And it was terrible for me and almost as bad for him. Lesser dentist would have dismissed me immediately, but he saw the task through. Well, I didn't go to see him simply one time. Because of the condition of my teeth, I had to go several times, and the same scene occurred over and over again. I learned later that I was one of that small percentage of people who suffers from dentophobia. That's an extreme fear, not just the jitters that many of you have had and may still have when you go to the dentist. But I mean, I was petrified by this situation. I also discovered that there is an acronym for what I was. And it was, and I'm going to have to look at it. I'm afraid I'll misrepresent it to you. And I know you don't want to miss any of this story. (laughs) I was a DBMT. A dental behavioral management problem. And I remember Dr. Solomon saying to me upon the second visit, he said, 
I don't care. And he didn't say it with a smile on his face, I might add. In fact, I never recall his smiling at me once in all the times I visited him. And he said to me, Mike, you can open your mouth as wide as you can. I've got a big mouth. You can see that, right? And it would help him. He didn't say that to me. And just scream your lungs out as long as you sit still. And I did exactly what he said. It's amazing. What I have discovered is I've investigated this whole idea of dentophobia is that it typically has to do with the one who is administering dental help. And when people are interviewed as to why they became so fearful of going to the dentist, invariably they talk about how the dentist was uncaring, cold, uninterested, and those things fit Dr. Solomon to a T, quite frankly. And the result of having such an experience causes the one who has had that experience, who has had dental trauma extreme experience, then the result is that person does not want to go to the dentist again and consequently waits until there is some severe problem before going the next time. Well, four years passed, and when you're six years old, four years is two-thirds of your life. Wow, I'm ten years old, and my teeth have deteriorated again. I'm going to the dentist. My mother, I know, dreaded the whole idea of telling me I was going, but she took me to the dentist, and this dentist was named Dr. Blaine. And when I came into Dr. Blaine's office, I was very afraid about going and very afraid of seeing him. My mother had told me what a nice person he is and all that sort of thing. And I didn't quite buy that because of my previous experience. And she's the one who introduced me to Dr. Solomon. I thought she made a bad choice the first time. The second time couldn't be much better. But, you know, when I walked into his office and sat in the dental chair. He walked in where I was waiting on him, and he had a broad smile on his face. It was not a pasted-on smile. It was a genuine smile. He began to talk to me about me. He showed some interest in me, quite contrary to my previous experience. And then he looked in my mouth, and he said, you've got some problems here, and we're going to work on them. My mother told him about the previous experience I'd had with the dentist, not going into the detail that I'm going into it with you this morning. But nevertheless, she said, is there some way you can help Mike not to be so traumatized by this experience? And he said, I have just the right thing. And he handed my mother some little pills. I don't really know what they were. Probably Valium. I'm not sure. And... He he didn't ever tell me what they were. He said, Mike, these are, just think of them as Dr. Blaine's little happy pills. I said, yes, sir. So I went home, came back the next week. I'd taken the pill about an hour before coming to the dentist office. And I was feeling really nice by the time I got there, actually. And he employed different methods of anesthetizing me. He still used a needle. He said, shut your eyes. Don't look. And he began to wiggle my cheek and after having put some topical anesthetic on there. And all of a sudden, I felt this little pinch, but it was not bad at all. And it was quite 
a pleasant experience, believe it or not, as he prepared my tooth for a crown. Well, I went back the next week, and the next week, and the next week. I had good experiences all along the way. And I grew from a place of dread as I got to know him and saw he was really there to help me from a place of dread to a place of respect. And quite actually, I grew to the place of actually having affection for him because of the way he cared for me. And then I actually began to think about I might be a dentist when I grow up. Now, when we think of the fear of God, make no mistake about it. We've seen already this morning from the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12, Solomon says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act into judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's enough to send a shiver down any thinking person's spine. To think that you and I are going to die, and after that comes the judgment, and we will stand before God. If that's not a sobering thought, you will never have a sobering thought again. That is something that really causes me to pause and think about. The good news for us who know Jesus is that When we stand before our God, we will not stand before Him as the potentate of the universe, which He is. But we will stand before Him as our Father who is in heaven. And remember the word which Jesus uses, which would have been in His mother tongue, Abba, which is the word for Dada the equivalent in English, and speaks of intimacy. Remember, we will stand before God, Jesus as our advocate. He is that now when we are accused day and night by Satan, the accuser of those who know Jesus Christ. And He lives even now and will throughout eternity to intercede for us. Can you imagine? To be our defense attorney. So, what happens when a man or a woman comes to Christ? That coming to Jesus is a moment of transition that's irreversible. When you trust Christ, you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you become a child of God. And you learn just how interested God the Father is in you. And how interested Jesus, the God-man, is interested in you. And how interested the Holy Spirit is in you. And you have fear. The fear begins to look like Great respect, admiration, reverential awe, and eventually you will want to be like Him. This is what the Word of God would teach us about this. And having said that, let's turn our attention to the text at hand and consider some things that it teaches us about the fear of God. There's no way in the time allotted today, or within my capacity actually, to do justice to this whole subject of the fear of God. There's not enough time to look at this idea comprehensively. But we are going to seek from this passage and supportive passages insight into three things. We're going to, first of all, consider the origin of the fear of God. Where did the fear of God, the whole idea, originate? 
Then we're going to look at the obligations of the fear of God. What obligation do you and I have as it relates to the fear of God? And then thirdly, we're going to look at the outcome of the fear of God. So let's begin with the first concept, the origins of the fear of God. Let's visit again our passage beginning with verse 38. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always. Now let's stop here just a moment. Who's going to give you and me the kind of heart that will propel us in the direction of fearing God? God is going to do this. In the book of Ezekiel, you know, Ezekiel 36, 26, the Bible says, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you so that you may be careful to do everything that I say in my law. So what does God do? He removes our dead, cold heart uh, and he gives us a new heart. We have a heart transplant. And he also implants in our hearts his spirit. His spirit energizes us, propels us in the direction of obeying Him and fearing Him. Now, glance down at verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put, listen carefully, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they will not turn away from me. Who puts this reverential awe for God in your heart? Who reveals God to you and to me? Who generates this desire on our part to know that God? And also to grow in our fear of Him and mature to the point that we actually begin to look like Him and be like Him. Who is it? This is God's idea. He is the originator of the fear of Himself. He does this for us. We don't have to find it within ourselves to fear Him. And one of the earmarks, listen carefully, one of the earmarks of a person who really is a child of God is that she or he will fear God. It's a given because of what the Word of God teaches us and what God does to fulfill His Word. Many of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a conversation is recorded between Susan and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. If you remember the story, you might even have a mental picture if you've seen the movie. I'd like to interrupt their conversation right in the middle of it and listen to this interchange between Susan and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver in whose home, if you will, in their lodge, she was being treated well. You'll understand when you see Aslan. Aslan is a type of Christ. You know that, I'm sure. He's a lion. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is... Is he a man? asked Lucy. 
Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. I would too, wouldn't you? That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Now, let me remind you of an experience that Peter had on the Sea of Galilee. After Peter and his fishing companions had spent all night fishing, catching not a fish, you remember they came to shore. Jesus asked, how did it go? Not a fish, Rabbi, not a fish. He said, just cast your net on the other side of the boat. And I can see Peter rolling his eyes. His body language would have indicated, you're a carpenter. We're the fishermen. We know what it means to fish and how to catch fish. And we also know when they're not there to be caught. But he agrees. He throws them over. And you know the rest of the story. A net filled with fish so heavy that it almost broke the net. And then when Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the shore. And what do we see him doing? I can envision his knees shaking actually. And what does he do? He bows down before Jesus. He says, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. That's the only appropriate response to the recognition of your being in the presence of a holy God and Jesus being the God-man. That's the only appropriate response. But that all changes, of course. Peter became more and more acquainted with Jesus He didn't become too familiar with him in the long run. There were points in the relationship when that was true. But back to Lucy's conversation and Susan's conversation with Mr. Beaver. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's our God. Our God is good. Recently you have been reading, if you've been reading along in our journey through the book of Mark, about a man who comes to Jesus. He's a very wealthy man. And he says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And what does Jesus say in response? There is no one his good. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. God, our Father, is good. Now think about this for a moment. Many fathers are represented in this room and even more mothers. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Shall your Father in heaven, who is perfect, give them perfect gifts? Please understand, the gift of the fear of God is as great as any gift that you and I can ever receive from Him. 
And we're going to see this unfold as we work our way through this passage. So, what is the origin of the fear of the Lord? Maybe a better way of asking the question, who is the origin of the fear of God? It's God Himself. He places His fear in our hearts. Now let's turn our attention to the obligations of the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 40 again. I'm going to read it from the top to get the context. I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Think with me about that last phrase. So that they will not turn away from me. The clear picture that's painted is that we are looking toward Jesus. And this idea of not turning away suggests that there is a time when we face Him. And that is part of what it means as it relates to our obligation. We are to trust God and we are to obey God. That is what leads us into a deepening fear of God. The Bible says in the book of Second Chronicles, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. I was thinking of what happened to Paul, then Saul, on the road to Damascus. In his own testimony, in Acts chapter 22, he's asked to tell what happened. He begins to give his testimony. And he talks about what he said to the Lord. And he said, Who are you, Lord? That was the first thing which... Saul said to Jesus, who are you? He wanted to know the Lord. And that is typical of a person who fears God. We want to know God. And amazingly, we have been given the opportunity to know the God of the universe. Can you imagine the audacity for someone like me to say, I know God? Me, one out of seven to eight billion people alive on the world. I can know God. I can have a relationship with God. It is absurd, isn't it, when you think about it, were it not for the fact that it is true. Because we know God through Jesus Christ. He introduces us to God. In fact, when Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us, To which Jesus replied, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So it's through Jesus that we know the Father. And Jesus says later in the book of John, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. How do we know Him? We know God through Jesus. We have a personal relationship, a vibrant relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son. Amazing, isn't it? What a privilege you and I have to know God, to fear God, to grow in our fear and knowledge of the Lord. Phenomenal truth for us as we think about this idea of seeking His face Just to know the Lord. This is part and parcel of what it means to trust God. To seek Him, the Bible says, as I mentioned, we're to seek Him. The Bible says in the book of Amos, you will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. This becomes the quest of a person who knows God and fears God. 
that we seek the Lord with a whole heart. And also, this idea of facing the Lord would carry with it the idea of following Him. And that's obedience, isn't it? We're following the Lord. Jesus often is recorded as having said to those that He encountered when He walked on the earth, He would say, follow me, follow me, follow me. Not only were we to face the Lord and know who He is, to grow in intimacy with Him, but we are also to follow Him. That's what He calls us to do. Saul, after having asked the question of the risen Christ, Who are you, Lord? Then he said, What do you want me to do, Lord? Please take note of the sequence. What comes first? Knowing Him. Spending time with Him. Not just once in a while, but making that the pattern of our lives. Spending time with Him. And then following Him. Obeying Him. He knows what lies ahead. We don't know what's going to happen one minute from now. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon or tomorrow or next month or next year. We don't know. We do know that Jesus knows. And He's quite aware of what lies ahead. And all we have to do is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that sounds very simple. But if it were so simple, more people would be following Him. It's because our flesh gets in the way. And you know what the word flesh means as it's used in the Bible primarily. It's a reference to the fact that we have selfish tendencies. We live in a self-hyphenated day, do we not? Self-reliance, self-understanding, self-hyphen, hyphen, hyphen, ad infinitum. On and on it goes. And we are to be people who follow Jesus. This is something that requires trust, doesn't it? Sure, it tries to requires trust and, of course, obedience. Of the 150 plus references in the Bible to fearing God, over one-fourth of them have to do with obedience. If you'll turn to the book of Deuteronomy and go to chapter 6, and I'll ask you to keep your place there if you've got a, a... Bible in book form, like I have, you want to keep your place in Deuteronomy. We're going to look at a couple of more passages in Deuteronomy before we complete the study today. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, which underscores what I just mentioned about this link between the fear of God and obedience. We saw it in Ecclesiastes twelve, thirteen, and 14. Now we see it here in Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and commandments which I command you. In other words, obey the Lord all the days of your life so that your days may be Prolonged. Do you see the connection between obedience and the fear of God? Obedience is the fruit of the tree whose root is the fear of God. Some of you are struggling with obedience to the Lord today. And part of that struggle is rooted in your own self, your selfishness. You want it your way. Lord, don't interfere with anything. 
that I'm doing, I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to ignore what you say. Some of you are suffering because you don't understand that the fear of the Lord is the root of which obedience is the fruit. Fear God, which involves obeying Him and trusting Him. Fear God and watch those things which are ruling your life go away. Gradually recede. doesn't mean you'll be sinless. What it means is there'll be a great reduction of self-centeredness, which always leads to sadness. Let me just say that again. Self-centeredness always leads to sadness. It's a cul-de-sac. When you begin to become more and more selfish, you can expect nothing but disappointment in your life. The quickest way out of the quagmire of sadness is to trust the Lord. That sounds overly simplified too, but it's the truth according to what the Bible says as well as the things which we observe in our lives. So here's a very important question. This is where we get practical, okay? How do we cultivate the fear of God? By obeying, of course, and by trusting. But I'm going to give you four things that are given to us in Scripture that will help us. The first of which is very simple. It's found in Psalm 86:11. It's a simple prayer. I tend to pray this prayer every morning before I open the Word of God to read it and spend time with the Lord. Psalm 86:11. David says, Unite my heart to fear your name. That's the idea of fearing your person is really the idea. Unite my heart. The suggestion is my heart is fragmented. My heart is broken. My heart is oriented in too many different directions. Do you ever feel like your life is like that? It's just a swirl of activity and you're going in several different directions simultaneously. Do you ever feel that way? Unite my heart to fear your name. Do you believe God will answer that prayer? Why, yeah. It's in His Word. And so the beginning place to develop a deeper fear of God is just to say, Lord, make me more fearful of you. Now, remember what the idea is. It begins with dread. As you grow in your relationship to the Lord, it transitions to respect. It ends up being reverential awe, and you want to imitate Him. That's what it ends up being. But you ask God, unite my heart to fear your name. Take me back to where I began, Lord. Put me together as you would have me to be put together. That's the first thing. Pray and ask the Lord to give you fear of Him. The second has to do with the Word of God. And there are three things that we need to do with regard to the Word of God. Let's go back to Deuteronomy. Maybe you're still there if you held your place there. And this time, let's look at Deuteronomy 4, verse 10. First of all, we need to hear the Word of God. Now, you are a rare group of people to be in a place like this at this time of the week, especially on Daylight Savings Sunday. You really wanted to hear the Word of God or you had to please somebody to keep peace at home to be here today. So you, you've taken this step already today. And you take it. I look at the people who are here. You're here very regularly. The 9 o'clock group is 
more predictable in terms of who will be occupying the seats than any other service we have. You're steady in your desire to hear the word. Okay, Deuteronomy 4.10. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. We come to hear the word of God to be taught so we can grow in the fear of the Lord. And that spills over into our children's lives, we hope. The best example your child will ever have of Christ is Christ in you as you fear the Lord. It will impact your child. And hopefully, your child will also choose to fear the Lord as you do. Then we need to read the Word. Go to Deuteronomy 17. It's not enough just to hear it. And there's wisdom in coming to a place like this and hearing someone open the Bible and teach the Word of God, not his own ideas, but the ideas which emerge from rightly dividing the Word of God and letting God's voice come through His voice as He teaches the Word of God. Let's look at Deuteronomy 17, 18, and 19. These words are addressed to once and future kings in Israel. It's anticipated that there will be such people. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17. Now it shall come about when he, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, that is the scroll, which would be the word of God, Deuteronomy in particular. It shall be with him and he shall do what? Read it all the days of his life. Do you know we have the splendid, incredible opportunity to open the Bible and read it every day of our lives? And if we're going to grow in the fear of the Lord, there has to be that regular coming before the Lord. And what he goes on to say, look what he says. That he may learn to fear the Lord as God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. So I need to be taught, like we're being taught today. I need also to come and let the Spirit of God teach me every day. I open the Word of God. The Spirit teaches me. And He teaches me things that He wants me to do after having first taught me what He says about who I am, which informs what I do as I listen to Him. I need to read the Word of God. I have the privilege of working with a lot of people on a more personal level than in this setting. And I have a group, three new believers. They're two in their 20s, one in her 30s. And I was meeting with these, this group yesterday afternoon. We're doing some discipleship studies together. And one of the participants had been absent for about three weeks due to changes in her life. She's a single parent. The husband of her, uh, former husband, uh, father of her children, changed shifts and he was working at a time that we had been meeting. So it's been a little problematic. And then work got in the way a couple of times. And I said, when she walked in a little earlier, I said, how are you doing? And she said, I haven't been doing very well. And she told me about what happened a week ago yesterday. On a Saturday, she said, 
I sat down on my sofa in the morning, and I'm not sure I got up all day. I was having a huge pity party all day long. And she's got a lot that could make her sad if she thought about it. Just like many of us, we all have things which, if we dwelled on those things, would certainly yield a real big crop of sadness, wouldn't it? And then I said, well, let me ask you a question. And she trusts me, and I, was, I said this in a loving way as a father would to a daughter. I said, are you in the Word? Have you been reading the Word of God? And she said, no, I have not. And I said, understand, God has given us His Word to read for And we looked at a passage of Scripture which says everything which was written in earlier times was written for instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. So understand this. We not only are to hear the Word, we are to read it. And then we're to go one step further, and that's to study it. And that would suggest just spending time meditating on God's Word. Asking God to be your teacher. The Holy Spirit's our teacher. Jesus says, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, whom God will send, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. You are not without a teacher. If you know Christ, you have the ultimate teacher living in you. And the Holy Spirit will teach you. Ask the Lord to teach you. Study. Now, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail at this point, but let me just stop and say this. Read some books, not to substitute for the Bible, but to supplement your Bible reading. Get hold of some literature that has been written by people who know God. And it's revealed in what they write about and people who fear God. Let me give you three names of people. Two of whom are living, one is deceased. The first is J.I. Packer. And the primary book I would suggest you to get hold of and read, if you really want to grow in the fear of the Lord. In addition, don't substitute this, I'm, I'm sounding like a broken record, don't substitute this for reading the Word. If you don't have time to do extracurricular reading, forget about it. Read God's Word. And the Spirit will teach you. But Knowing God by J.I. Packer. The second is one who is deceased. A.W. Tozer. He's deceased, a man of God par excellence. He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. Knowing God, the pursuit of God. And then John Piper, very much alive. His books are excellent. Desiring God is the book I would suggest. If you really want to grow in the fear of the Lord, study these men's works. John Bunyan, speaking of great authors, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, on his treatise on the fear of God, listen to what he said as the Word of God relates to the fear of God. The fear of God flows from a sound impression that the Word of God makes on our souls. This was a man who knew God. For without the impress of the Word, there is no fear of God. This explains the low level of Christianity in America today. Either people don't know God, and that's probable in many cases. They think they do, but they don't. Because remember, who is the originator of the fear of God? God Himself. He says, I will put my fear 
in their hearts so they will not turn away from me. In other words, they'll face me and they'll follow me. They'll obey me and they'll trust me. But there are people who do know the Lord, but for whatever reason have ignored the reading and the studying of the Word of God. And the result is obvious and it's very sad, the result. The level of inferior faith. Here's the third thing that we can do to cultivate the fear of God. The first thing is what? Pray. Ask God to unite your heart to fear His name. Two, the Word of God. Hear it. Read it. Study it. Then we are to train ourselves to be godly. 1 Timothy 4.7 Many of you go to the gym. Many of you do some sort of exercise. I walk probably a mile and a half to three miles every day. That's about the extent of my exercise. But it's very healthy for me. I look forward to it. I spend maybe 45 minutes a day to an hour walking every day. And I begin to think about this idea of train yourself. The word which Paul chooses is the same word which was used to describe athletes in training for what we would call the Olympic Games in his day and time. Train yourself to be godly is what Paul says. Now, I begin to think about this in my own life. Do I spend an equivalent amount of time at least? I know I'm a preacher, but I'm talking about in my off time. I don't do my work to get to know God here as much as you might guess I would do it here when I'm on the premises here. The ten hours a day or so I spend five or six days a week doing that. But I have my time alone with the Lord just like hopefully you do in my home. Do I spend the equivalent amount of time training myself in godliness as I do training my body in being physical? I know the body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing wrong with training your body as long as you understand why you train it. You train it so you can be a better conveyor of the Holy Spirit to the world and the gospel of Jesus to the world. That's what the Word of God tells us. So we're to train ourselves. Remember, Paul says later, he says, physical exercise is of some value, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So train yourself. You can train yourself, otherwise we would not be commanded. The Spirit of God puts that desire in your heart. Train yourself. Pick your word up. Read the word of God. Ask God to be your teacher. He will teach you. He will speak to you as you read his word. And the last thing, and this is the consummation of all the other three, really, and all these other three are really expressions of this last thing. We will worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. Worship has been described as a human response to divine revelation. God reveals himself to us by his spirit through his word. And we respond affirmatively to what he says to us. And the result is we worship him. And I want to read two paragraphs and listen carefully in its own worship. Music and liturgy can assist or express a worshiping heart, but they cannot make a non-worshiping heart into a worshiping one. The danger is that they can give a non-worshiping heart the sense of having worshipped. In other words... Going through the paces when you come to a place like this. So the crucial factor in worship in the church is not the form of worship, but the state of the hearts of the saints. It's not whether we sing choruses, or we sing hymns, or we sing contemporary songs, or old songs. That has nothing to do with worship. That's just a form of worship. As long as it's God-centered, it's good. 
What kind of instrumentation we use, that's not important. Whether we even use instruments, that's really not important. He goes on to write, if our corporate worship isn't the expression of our individual worshiping lives, it is unacceptable. Do you hear what he's saying? It's what you and I do in private that creates the stage, sets the stage for real worship when we come together. A worshiping congregation Monday through Saturday produces a mighty powerful force in a setting like this. And worship is an expression of the fear of the Lord. It's honoring to the Lord. If you think you can live any way you want and then go to church on Sunday morning and turn on worship with the saints, you're wrong. John MacArthur is the person who wrote those words. And they're so true. Well, let's quickly look at the last thing. This is the icing on the cake, really. The outcome. Let's look again at verse 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good. Do you know fearing the Lord is for our own good and for the good of their children? You love your children? What should you and I do? If we love our children, we love our grandchildren, what kind of man or woman should we be? We should be men and women who fear the Lord and grow in the fear of the Lord. And then look at verse 41. This is awesome. I will rejoice over them to do them good. The outcome, God will rejoice over you if you fear Him. Do you want God to rejoice over you? Well, the quickest way to get there is to grow in the fear of the Lord. We need to fear Him, and He will rejoice over us. Zephaniah has something to say about that. But here's the second part. Look at the last part of this verse. And I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. And He will do good to us just as surely as He did good to Israel. God will do good to you. Now, if you stop to think about this for a moment, does God have any limitations on His ability to do good to you? Let's say that I received a call today from Bill Gates. He said, Pastor Woods, you don't know me personally. You probably know about me. I don't know you personally, but I just had this sense that I needed to tell you that you have an open account, access to my account. For the rest of your life, I said, thank you, Bill. I appreciate your generosity. But let's say I contracted an incurable illness sometime shortly thereafter. All his resources could not give me what I need, a cure, right? Because he's a human just like me. But our God has limitless resources. There's nothing that he cannot do. And look at Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Uh, somebody's still in Jeremiah. Is anybody still in Jeremiah thirty-two? Okay, Christy, would you read verse seventeen for us, please? Thirty-two seventeen. Amen. So he's not handicapped in any way. He has all the resourcing necessary to do good to me. And that's his MO. He's able to turn bad things into good things. 
The Bible says God causes all things to work together for good for those who love Him. And it's seen in the way He guides us. Let's look at Psalms. We're going to make a quick trek through the Psalms. He gives us guidance. Psalm 25, 12. Do you need guidance today? You need to look no further than the Word of God and listen for the voice of God. Look at verse 12 of Psalm 25. Who is the man who fears the Lord? God will instruct him in the way he should choose. Be sure that if you need guidance, God is there and ready to give it to you on anything you might ask him. And he has the answer in his word. So he will do good to you by guiding you. He will also do good to you by protecting you. Look at Psalm 33, verses 16 through 18. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. What is David writing here? He's saying conventional weaponry is not going to save you. Look at verse 18. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who do what? Fear him. On those who hope or wait is actually the word for his loving kindness. Now let's look at the next chapter, Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. What does this tell us? If we fear him, what is true? The angel of the Lord encircles me. He surrounds me and he fights off those who would try to undo me. In that same chapter, we come to another good thing He does for us. What is the first thing He does for us that's good? He guides us. What's the next thing? He protects us. The third thing, He provides for us. Look at 34, 9 and 10. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. Think about that. He goes on to say, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. That has been my testimony. That is my testimony. I'm well into the latter stages of my life. And to this point, the Lord has never left me without what I've needed and more. And it's because He is my Father. And He has taught me over the years what it means to fear Him. And it's a great benefit. Do you think that's something good? Certainly you do. Let's go to Psalm 103. Very familiar psalm. Psalm 103. We're going to look at 8 through 18. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 18. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us. He will... Keep his anger. He will not keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. So, what is said here? His loving kindness is toward us who fear him. And let's glance down the page at verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord from everlasting to everlasting on those who do what? Those who fear him. So the Lord 
incredible. This is the bigger, biggest benefit of those that I've shared. His compassion. We need compassion, right? We need mercy. Do you need mercy? Well, guess what? If you fear the Lord, you'll get it. You get it. Now, as I finish this morning, this is sort of a bonus. And listen carefully. It's in the last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, right before Matthew, Malachi chapter 3. The state of the people of God was very poor. Just read the book of Malachi. It was terrible. A lot like today, the culture was. Now look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. What do you think they were saying to one another? They were encouraging one another. Don't quit. Don't quit. Fear the Lord. We've got to stay the course. We've got to fear the Lord. We want to trust Him. We want to obey Him. We want to love Him. We want to walk in all of His ways. We want to keep His commandments and keep His statutes. Hang in there. That's what we're here for in part today, to encourage one another. Then those who fear the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before God for those who fear the Lord and who esteem His name. What do you think that's saying? There is a book that the Lord keeps in heaven. Figurative, I'm sure. And guess whose names are in the book? People who fear Him. And this is the Lamb's book of life. I'm pretty sure of that. And what God would say to you and me is, you want to have the best I have for you? Then fear me. Fear me. Do you see how the Lord shows His love to us in an extreme way when He causes us to fear Him? There's none who can be blessed apart from the fear of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank You, Lord, for this passage of Scripture. Thank You for Your emphasis and Your Word on fearing You. Help us to take these things and not let them quickly leave our thoughts. Help us to explore this more fully and recommit our lives to fearing You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.